This is Invisibilia, stories about the invisible forces that shape human behavior. I'm Lulu Miller. And I'm Elise Spiegel. And today we are talking about fear. And like many stories that involve fear, this one begins in the woods. This is taped from a film which shows two little children, ages four and six, together in a clearing in the forest. They're alone, two tiny bodies dwarfed by tall, dark trees. Close by in the brush, a man is watching them. By his side, there's a camera. But really, the children don't even seem to notice the man. They're too busy, absorbed in one of the most central, sacred activities of human childhood. (laughs) The production of fart noises. (laughs) Now, this film is all about the fart noises in a way. The man filming them from the trees was an environmental psychologist who was interested in what children do when they're alone. Because at that time, this film was taken in the 1970s, that work had literally never been done before. They just hadn't been studying children in natural settings. This is Roger Hart, the environmental psychologist in the trees. Almost nothing was known about how children even explored the world. And then I came across a book on baboons. And I realized that we knew more about baboons' everyday behavior than we did about children's behavior outside of school. And so you wanted to study children the way Jane Goodall studied baboons? Precisely. So Roger found himself a small town in Vermont, set himself up there, and started tracking all of the children in the town. There were 86 children between 3 and 12 years of age, and I worked with all of them. All of the waking hours for two and a half years, I was with them. They were my life, these kids. Roger would follow the kids throughout the day, documenting everywhere the children went by themselves. Show me the places that are dangerous. Show me the places that are scary. Take me to where you're not supposed to go and show me where that is. He then took that information and literally made maps. Okay, let me just find a chapter. Physical maps that measured the distance each child was allowed to go by themselves and what the average was for every age group. And what Roger discovered was that these kids had remarkable freedom. Even four- or five-year-olds, like the ones in the woods, traveled unsupervised throughout their neighborhoods. And by the time they were 10, most of the kids had the run of the entire town. They have more than the run of the town. Some of them would go to the lake, which would be on the edge of town. And the lake, you'd think, would be a place that would be out of bounds. But the parents weren't worried about the lake or their kids being abducted. Abduction um, wasn't something I ever heard anybody talk about then. So there was no stranger danger? No. Point is that these parents weren't particularly motivated by fear. No. Which brings us to today. See, several years ago, Roger went back to the exact same town to document the children of the children that he had originally tracked in the 70s. And when he asked the new generation of kids to show him where they played alone, what he found floored him. They just didn't have very far to to take me, just walking around their property, really. The huge circle of freedom on the maps had grown tiny. There is no free range outdoors, even when they're much, much older. Parents now say, I need to know where you are. 
I need to know where you are at all times. What's odd about all of this, Roger says, is that the town is not more dangerous than it was before. There's literally no more crime today than there was 40 years ago. You know, 35 years later, it's remarkably the same. Same physically. Same physically and um, demographically in terms of living in the town. Very similar. So why has the invisible leash between parent and child tightened so much? Roger says it was absolutely clear from his interviews. The reason was fear. You know, you just never know who's out there and what these crazy people are are doing. Now, this frightened parent is actually somebody you've already met before. (laughs) Andrew, the very little boy playing unattended in the woods at age four, all grown up. Even he told Roger he was too afraid to let his kids roam free. And I think when, when we were children, you know, my parents wouldn't worry if I was gone for an hour in the, you know, or up in the woods. But here, if, they're go- if my girls are gone for five minutes, I start to, you know, think, okay, somebody could be turning around at the end of the road and, or, you know, whatever. So that makes a, that makes a big difference. And what Roger found in this small town... You see it again and again across America. Crime is at its lowest levels nationally since the 1950s. But everywhere you look, fear of the world outside our door narrows the circle of our lives. Why? Are you rolling? Yeah, he's rolling. So I guess we're ready. This is Ralph Adoffs, a professor at Caltech who spent decades studying fear in the human brain. And when we were talking, he said something that really struck me. He said our overall fear threshold, that is, what triggers our fear, is something that evolution has set and set at a high level for very good reason. Uh, You know, if I just hear a slight creak in my house at night, I feel fear. And 99.9% of the time, there's no burglar in the house and it's all safe. But nonetheless, I felt fear. So you have a lot of false positives. But that's as it should be because you don't want to miss any. The problem, Adolf says, is just that modern life, it's constantly triggering our fear in all kinds of ways that our natural world didn't. This is the sound of the first mass murder captured on film in American history. It was recorded in Austin, Texas in 1966 after a lone shooter named Charles Whitman stormed the balcony of the clock tower in the middle of the University of Texas campus and started firing at random. There must have been a hit that last time. We hear people outside of our building in an area where we can't now look safely saying, let's help that boy. Does he need help? Someone must be down. Bullets bouncing off the top of the It is chilling to see this footage. The puffs of gun smoke floating from the deck of the clock tower. The people falling to the sidewalk in the hot Texas sun and not getting up. It's terrible. But today, of course, it's not exactly novel. This morning in Michigan, police have arrested a man who's suspected of chopping up his wife. A stranger seized a child. Three men accused of abducting and holding the women hostage are in jail. Horror inflicted on other people surrounds us 
more or less constantly. And Adolphs argues that because of our wiring, we are just not set up to ignore it. A serial killer. And so it distorts our experience of the world, activating our fear when we don't need it. It's only a matter of time before he strikes again. Essentially, Adolphs is saying that a lot of our modern first world fear is totally unnecessary. I think not being able to experience fear is mostly lethal if you're in the wild. Not in today's world. I mean, I'm sitting here in my office and, you know, other than a microphone in my face, there's not a particular threat going on. So, so our environment, uh, which of course isn't the environment in which we evolved, uh, you know, there just aren't that many hazards around. Which got Lulu and I thinking, what would happen to us if we somehow disappeared our fear? This is Invisibilia. I'm Lulu Miller. And I'm Elise Spiegel. And what we do on our show is look at the invisible things, like emotions, assumptions, beliefs, ideas, that control human behavior. And today, the thing that we are looking at is fear. Oh, my God! That ancient chemical reaction that shaped us and allowed us to survive as a species. How would our lives be different if we were able to short-circuit fear? All right, Elise, so you're going to get us started, right? Yeah. So the question is, what happens when you disappear fear? And to answer it, I went to one of the only people who can, like, objectively try to answer that question, a neuroscientist at the University of Southern California named Antonio Damasio. I always like to say that I have a perfect face for radio. Yeah. No, 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 I know. It's the same for me. See, one day in the early 90s, a young woman came to see Damasio. We're going to call her S.M. for reasons that I'll get to shortly. She looked like a a pleasant woman. She had a a very open face and looked like a perfectly normal person. S.M. had originally come to the hospital because she had these unexplained blackouts. But Damasio says that sitting there, everything about her seemed quite normal, except for one small thing, her physical proximity. struck me a little bit out of the ordinary, she was very close to you. Uh, And that, of course, came to have an an interpretable meaning after we knew more about her. But at that point, I would say that she looked like a perfectly normal person. And she is a perfectly normal person, except for one particular problem. The problem? The woman couldn't feel fear, literally could not experience that emotion. Fearless, that's the best way of, of describing it. Now, fearlessness like this, that is a biological inability to feel fear, is incredibly rare. Fear is one of the most basic emotions that we have, so it's next to impossible to find someone without it. Fear, it's a very towering emotion. In fact, Scientists have identified only about 400 people on Earth with the condition that was causing fearlessness in SM. Very unusual disease called Urbach-Vita disease. Urbach-Vita has three main symptoms. People with the disease usually have an extremely hoarse voice, small bumps around their eyes, 
But also, the disease leads to these deposits in the brain. Deposits of calcium, little stones in certain parts of the brain, and one part in particular is a favorite for those deposits, and that is the amygdala. The amygdala are two almond-shaped structures deep in the brain, critical for the processing of fear. And in SM's brain, her amygdala were completely calcified. It's a little bit as if you would go to this region and literally scoop it out. Which is why, biologically, SM couldn't feel fear. That bit of brain couldn't signal to the rest of her body that it was time for her heart to start racing and her palms to sweat. It's also why SM was so profoundly valuable to the scientist who studied her, like Damasio, and the fear researcher Ralph Adolfs that you heard earlier. Because fear seems critical to survival. But here was SM, alive and also completely normal in other ways. She had normal intelligence and no problem with any other emotion. Joy, sadness, anger. She was perfectly normal with those. Fear was really an isolated defect. In a sea of emotions, her brain had subtracted just one. Which brings me to the reason why we are using SM instead of the woman's real name. Because as you might imagine, being without fear is dangerous. To to make the point very clearly, if she would be threatened, and she has in her life, um, she would not register the fear that that would immediately cause in you or me. And so for the last three decades, the scientists researching SM have been very, very careful about guarding her identity. Though people have written about her, no reporter has ever been allowed to contact her or anyone connected to her. No one has heard from her directly in any way. Until now. Hello? 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 Hi. This is SM. You're on there. I'm on here. Yes, sir. Like every other journalist, I was not allowed to meet or even email SM. I don't know her name or where she lives. Nothing I could use to identify her because if her identity leaked, people could very easily take advantage of her. But I was able to give a short list of questions to one of the neuroscientists who's been studying her for the last 20 or so years. A man named Daniel Trinnell. Dr. Daniel Trinnell at the University of Iowa. And he called SM on the phone and recorded as he read to her from my list. Tell me what fear is. Well, that's what I'm trying to, to be honest. I, I, I truly have no clue. You have a sense of what it would feel like to to be afraid and feel fear? No, not really. When SM first met the scientists who've been studying her, she was in her early 20s, a wife and mother of young boys. By that time, her amygdala was already completely calcified, so she couldn't feel fear. But apparently, before the complete calcification, when she was very young, she had experienced fright. Tell me this, when do you remember feeling fear in in your life? 
I believe when I was just a little girl. SM had been out fishing with her dad, and they'd caught a great big catfish. And I, I didn't want to take the dog fish. You were afraid to take the fish off the hook. Yeah, because I didn't want to get fed. And that's the only time when I can really remember being afraid of the doggone fish when I was small. Somewhere in her teens, somewhere between the catfish and walking into Damasio's office, SM's ability to experience fear just slowly faded out. And the world around her became benign, a place populated by people and things that only seemed to wish her well. DeBazio and the other scientists who've studied SM know this because they've done all kinds of tests that prove it's true. They've exposed her to the most terrifying animals that they could find, snakes. She had to be restrained from playing with the ones that would actually be quite dangerous to her. They've tried to condition a fear response into her by randomly assaulting her with the sound of a loud, jarring horn. Nothing. She just seems emotionally blind to the experience of fear. I I wonder what it's like, you know, to, to actually be afraid of something. For example, in one of the studies that Damasio did, he asked SM to draw for him a picture of a face with a fearful expression. But she couldn't do it. She would be puzzled and would be pencil in hand and paper, and she would not be able to draw a face of fear. Not even able to conjure up the image. Which brings us back to the big question of the show. What would it be like to walk through the modern world with no fear? Are you okay? What I can tell from looking at the case of SM, and it is one case, is that her inability to feel fear, it makes her much more open and friendly than most people. Nice to meet you. Which in many ways is a great thing. But it also has its downsides. Because SM is often open, even with people who mean her harm. Years ago, when, when my three sons were, were small, Okay, don't say their names. Okay. I was walking to the store, and I saw this man on the park bench. He said, come here, please. So I went over to him. I said, what do you need? He grabbed me by the shirt, and he held a knife to my throat and told me he was going to cut me. I told him, I said, go ahead and cut me. I said, I'll be coming back and I'll hunt your ass. Oops. Am I supposed to say that? Yeah, I'm that's sorry. Okay. That's okay. It's a, it's an intense situation. How did you feel when that happened? I wasn't afraid. And for some reason, he let me go. And I went home. Call the police? No. In her life... SM has been held at knife point at least once besides this, and held at gunpoint twice. Also, her first husband nearly beat her to death. So clearly, a life without biological fear exposes you to dangers that are easier to avoid if you do have fear. But talking to Damasio, I never got the sense that he saw a lack of fear 
as a death sentence at all. How do you make it through the world if you're not physically capable of fear? Oh, you can, you can make it perfectly well, obviously. Uh, if you are smart enough, uh, the, the big difference here is having a true emotive reaction or having to think through it, which may be more or less accurate and certainly longer in time in terms of the response. The, the, the beauty of emotions is that they're ready-mades. What an emotion is, same way that an instinct or a drive, is that you don't need to think about it in order to do it. It's a natural, ready-made way of leading you to the correct behavior. One thing SM might be showing us, Damasio is suggesting, is that we might not need our ready-made of fear as much as we have assumed. There are other very viable paths to the correct behavior, like logic. If you were crossing the street and you looked up and saw a car racing towards you, how do you think you would feel? I would try to get out of the way. You know, feel your heart race or skip a beat? I don't know, but I would try to jump out of its way. Which, finally, brings me to the absolutely crazy thing about not having fear that I feel like I learned from looking at the case of SM, which is this. Without fear, trauma is not traumatizing. Instead of running away, I faced it. I said, I'll be coming back and I'll hunt your ass. <laughs> if, she, if she cannot conceptualize the threat, she hasn't had the bad events happen to her. Can you just say that, say so, that again? Okay, so the, the, the bad events appear to us because we know that she was threatened, but she herself did not see herself as threatened. So as a result, she is lacking the bad stuff in her life. To me, this is incredible. Like metaphysical. <laughs> it's not metaphysical. It's very objective. It's it's it, it's because the situation was indeed not threatening in the sense that it would be for us. Then she didn't have a bad episode to register in the history of her life. In other words, if she looks at her autobiography, her autobiography does not have that written in big letters as this was a bad thing. Because it was not a bad thing in terms of her experience. It's not that she is masking it, it's that she didn't have it to begin with. Well, let me ask you, consider yourself a happy person? Well, you know, there's some days that I could be on top of the world, and there's some days that, you know, I can be got the blues, but nine out of ten, I say happy. Yeah, okay. It seems like such an odd bargain. If you have no fear, more terrible things will happen to you, but you don't personally experience them as terrible. If you have a lot of fear, fewer bad things are likely to happen, but it's very probable that your life is more painful to you. So is it better to be fearful or fear less? Which side of the continuum do you choose?
When we come back, we experiment with two different ways of reducing fear. And because this is not just high-class journalism, but also cheesy secret self-help made by two women who have unironically watched all of Jennifer Aniston's romantic comedies, we will offer you, at the very end of the program, an actual formula that you can write down that will help you to face your fear, whatever your fear is. I think I just heard the soul of an NPR founder scream out and die. (laughs) Yeah, I think I just heard that too. Invisibilia will be back in a minute. This message comes from NPR sponsor Pocket Casts. From Hidden Brain to How I Built This, from Planet Money to Code Switch, enjoy all your favorite NPR podcasts on Pocket Casts, a free and feature-filled podcasting app. And now they're offering NPR listeners even more. Try Pocket Casts Plus for three months free and take your podcast listening experience to the next level. Visit pocketcast.com NPR to redeem your trial. This is Invisibilia. I'm Elise Spiegel. Today, we are looking at fear, asking, can we disappear fear? And we have two experiments coming up of people who have tried to get rid of their fear. So let me introduce you to our first test subject. Okay. Um, So can you please say your whole name? Louisa Elizabeth Miller. And and what's, what's the name you go by? Lulu. Lulu. Lulu Miller. Perhaps you've heard of her. She is our test subject today because, you see, Lulu has what seems like a completely intractable, utterly unmanageable, and really, if you've seen it in action, surprisingly floridly expressed fear of snakes. Yes, I have had a lifelong fear of snakes, the kind that is so basic and huge Paralyzing? Paralyzing. That I just always assumed it was innate. I'm afraid it probably isn't. You know, this is what's so interesting about it. This is Greg Downey, a scientist at Macquarie University in Australia who revealed to me the unsettling truth. You know, kids are not instinctually afraid of snakes. Hmm. You do have to turn it on. So I wondered, if it's not actually written into my genes, could I just stop being afraid of the snake? Absolutely. Absolutely, we can change our level of fear. I mean, that's, it's kind of one of the things that makes humans so different from other animals. The first human who picked up a spear and actually didn't run away panicked when dinner came calling was overriding fear. You know, our ancestors, when they hunted, that's amazing that they did that. I don't know if there's too many other species who, I don't know if there's any, who have moved from being prey to predator. Huh. Now, how do we actually do this? Greg says it's thanks to a special human gift. The fact that you can talk to yourself in your own head. What's often called executive function. This is incredibly powerful. Because suddenly, if your body's telling you to flee, you can use that little executive in your head to ignore it. And I think as a species, our evolution depended upon our ancestors not being afraid of things that we're perfectly reasonable to be afraid of. And so I decided that like the ancestors who came before me, I was going to see if I could use my little executive brain to overcome my snake fear. That's right, Elise. It was going to be a battle of new brain versus old brain. Thinker versus fear-er. 
me versus me. Okay, so first stop was I needed to deduce the precise source of the snake fear. What exactly was causing it? And when I started asking around about this, I found that most people had the same feeling about snakes as I did. But it's not the bite that is scary. It's the movement of it, actually. I, I, I don't know why, but it's the movement. It is definitely the movement. It's the slither. Oh. It just looks like it's pushing off nothing. Oh. So I dug deeper. Why is the slither so disturbing? It's unnatural. Like, it's uncanny. Maybe that the word is uncanny. And the best that people could articulate was just that the movement didn't make sense. I have no idea how they do it, you know? Which is a strange property of fear if you think about it, that a simple lack of understanding can make fear chemicals spurt through our bodies. But hey, there you go. <sighs> so Elise, here is the question. If the fear derives from the unknowability of the snake's slither, if we simply learned how they worked, could we make the fear go away? So essentially was your question, could I cure myself? If on a rational level I understood yep. how this was possible? Yes. Um, I think it's even in the Bible that snakes, I'm going to paraphrase this. How in the world does this thing work? This is David Hugh, a mechanical engineer at Georgia Tech. You know, I, I almost rem- I remember reading that. and it, it The Bible says the slither defies comprehension. It's a mysterious thing. So I think if they say something's unknowable in the Bible, it just kind of draws, draws you in. Draws you in, especially if you do what David Hugh does for a living, which is basically to put numbers to the living world. That's about right. This field is the physics of living systems. So fresh out of grad school, David Hugh made it his mission to decode the slither. When I first started this problem, I was actually in a place where there are very few snakes, New York City. And um, there's these secret snake expos Hmm. where basically um, people raise snakes in their basement and then they bring them to this expo and then sell them for $10 each. And so I basically had to take the New York subway and get a pile of snakes. um, And I didn't have anything to transport them, so I put them in my shirt. What? No. Well, I didn't have a car. What? And you had just had got on the subway with snakes in your shirt? It seemed like a good idea at the time. No, that does not seem like a good idea. So after bringing to life a nightmare too terrifying for us snakeophobes to even dream up, that the man sitting next to you on the subway has a wriggling colony of snakes concealed under his jacket? Three corn snakes and one boa constrictor. Oh. David Hugh goes back to his lab. Mm-hmm. And, um... The first thing we do is film them. He lets them out, one at a time, onto a smooth board. I still remember watching the first snake move. It's, it's really a magical thing when you snake, see snake move on a featureless surface, on a completely flat surface. Mm-hmm. Your heart starts beating faster. So, with his camera rigged up directly over the snake, he starts measuring every single part of the snake he can think of. Every single curve on its body, the way the curves are shaped, how often the curves are placed on the ground. Trying to figure out how the snakes are moving so darn fast. How they get enough force to move them forward so effortlessly. Was it something in the trigonometry of their muscles? Or was it something more surface level? How they use their belly scales. Friction, essentially. Mm -hmm. 
So the first thing Hugh figured out is that the snakes had this special kind of friction, what's called an isotropic friction, where the friction works more intensely in one direction. Mm -hmm. And so to see how much of a role this plays in their speed, all Hugh would have to do is see how the snake moves without scales. So the best thing we could do was put a snake into a sock. (laughs) It's a snake in a sock. And the amazing thing is once the snake's in a sock, it's terrible at moving. It can't move anywhere. You've seen those movies when... Your, these kidnappers catch you and you have your hands and feet bound and you've right. got to like, crawl towards the door. It looks yeah. about as unelegant as that. So you're at this moment. I'm just imagining like suddenly you've taken with the, with the sock, you've mm-hmm. taken away the creepy from the snake. And so it's like, so is the answer, oh, the thing so many people are terrified the world over about in snakes is just anisotropic friction? <laughs> No, no, no. What we found actually troubled us. They, our computer snakes, our mathematical snakes, um, using these friction measurements that we measured, mm-hmm. um, it was only moving half as fast as the real snake. Really? Yeah. So. Oh, so the snakes, the real snakes still had something special making yeah. them go forward that you couldn't find yet. Yeah. And in my field, I think a factor of 10% is considered maybe that's experimental error. Yeah. But a factor of two means that they're really missing something important. Yeah. In other words, with all the fanciest instrumentation in the world, David Hugh could not make this unknowable snake knowable. So we had to figure out what else the snake was doing. Um, can I can, can I, can I take 90 seconds to tell you my crazy theory before you tell me what the answer is? Definitely. Okay. Go ahead. All right, Elise. Uh-huh. So this music s- signals that we are going to leave the land of strict reporting and journey to the land of fact-based wild speculation. Your natural habitat. My natural place to be. Um, the thing that I think could be accounting for the snake's mysterious speed is an invisible chemical out there, a real one, that influences how animals move. David Hugh, have you ever heard of Shrek stuff? Shrek stuff? Mm-hmm. No, is that German or something? It is German for scary stuff. Okay. It was an idea first proposed in the 1930s by this scientist named Carl von Frisch when he noticed that when one minnow gets alarmed, minnows fairly far away from it will dart away. And he wondered, huh, could there be some sort of chemical fear passing between them? Shrek stuff. Mm-hmm. Today, scientists use a different name, alarm pheromones, and they've been shown to exist in all kinds of animals. Oh, there are so many. It's actually, um, it's really standard. So you see it certainly in insects, you see it in fish, you see it in mammals, like rodents. This is Dr. Lillian Mujica Parodi, a neuroscientist at Stony Brook. Sheep and deer. All of these animals have been shown to either move faster or freeze or get more aggressive, all in automatic response to another animal's chemical fear. Okay, so you're seeing this and you're thinking... Why not in humans? Do humans humans emit some sort of chemical fear that could change the humans around them? Um, And that led to a whole series of experiments where, you know, unfortunately we had to make people afraid. And skydiving was the way to do that. She collected the sweat of very terrified people as they jumped out of an airplane for the first time ever. 
And then she took that fierce sweat and wafted it into the noses of other people lying down in fMRIs. And what we saw is that the fear center of the brain lit up. And their cognitive abilities changed, too. She showed the fMRI people really fast images of faces. Then it turns out that the alarm pheromone increases the accuracy with which you're able to determine whether someone is aggressive or not. Huh. And by the way, none of these brain changes occurred when she instead wafted in harmless exercise sweat collected from those same skydivers. It activated in response to the fear sweat, but not the exercise sweat. That is so spooky. It's profound. Your brain responds to disembodied particles of fear. Meaning, you know when you get a kind of bad feeling about a person or a place? That could be real information you are detecting at the chemical level. Which makes me sort of start to picture the world differently, as though there's this mist of emotions waiting out there that can change you depending on where you happen to step. I think that is the part that bothers people. That makes people nervous about the whole concept of free will. So Elise? Yeah? Do you see how this is all about to account for the mysterious speed of the snake's slither? No. Not even a little bit. No? <laughs> well, well, what have we learned? That there is a chemical component to fear uh-huh. that can change the way other creatures behave. We did learn that. That happens in bugs and mice and likely between humans. Mm-hmm. And guess what? What? It has recently been shown that it can also happen across species. Damn. Yeah. See where this is going? So is it so wild to say that a whiff of human fear could be in some way detectable to a snake? Your heart starts beating faster when you're around snakes. And trigger some sort of automatic reaction, like, say, a rush of calcium to the blood causing a contraction in muscle that accounts for that missing last burst of speed. Yes, that is my wild speculation, that snakes are sailing around on currents of our fear. I mean, do you think that is totally ludicrous? No. No, I don't. I actually went to four different scientists asking specifically if human fear could make a snake move faster, and they all said, That's plausible. Why not? Sure. <laughs> that's really that's really interesting, this... um interaction between the snake and the observer. I mean, it would be a terrible world if um, snakes would move faster the more afraid you were of them. (laughs) Back to David Hugh. Sorry that took more than 90 seconds. I sort of lost myself. But there he is with his camera poised over the snake. Maybe that's the missing 50%? (laughs) We thought... uh, Hugh said he did briefly consider a chemical explanation. Um, His thinking changed when he lowered his camera angle and started filming the snakes from right alongside them on the ground. You know, surprisingly, that's not something people had done. No one, very few people had, you know, lay on the floor and -hmm. look at a snake while it's moving. And um, when you do that, you can see they actually, this idea that they keep their whole bodies on the ground is actually not true. You can actually see little cracks of light underneath the snake. Mm. It happens very quickly, but if you slow it down with a camera, you can see that the curves lift into the air. They just lifted a couple millimeters, and that's enough to push the body forward. Huh. In other words, the snake 
which for millennia has seemed so unknowable, if you look real close, it's like it's walking. So, is that it? Like, yeah, that, that's that, the punchline. <laughs> Snakes are not, in fact, slithering. So they are walking. walking. Okay, all right. Snakes so are walking. They're walking. All right, I got you. There's I got you. Nothing I got you. I got you. I got you. The snakes are a lot more like us. Okay, so does that mean that you're cured? Oh my God. Oh. To test listeners, I have just brought in a python. And it's not in a cage either. So listeners, remember how I said at the beginning that Lulu's fear was quite floridly expressed? I want you to conjure a look of sheer terror in a woman cowering on top of a table in a corner. Now make that woman sweat so profusely that you begin to wonder if what you are doing actually conforms to the guidelines laid out in NPR's reporting ethics handbook. You're fine. You're fine. Okay, Lulu from the future here, no longer frozen on her desk, Elise made me spend the whole day with that snake. She put it in a glass cage next to my computer, and every time it would slither, I would use my executive brain to think. It's like it's walking. Ugh. It's like it's walking. Ugh. It's like it's walking. <sighs> okay. And it didn't really help. Snakes still terrify me. As much as I know about them, knowledge hasn't helped. So you think that you're defeated? Yeah. Though, in the spirit of full disclosure, Mm -hmm. I do need to tell you that snake movement is not 100% solved. It isn't? No. When David Hugh put in those numbers that account for the weight distribution of the walking snake, Uh he still came up 10% short. So there might be some room for this... um, Fear, what would you call it? Oh, Shrek stuff. Shrek stuff. I think that Shrek stuff might be there in the last 10%. (laughs) So maybe the snake truly is unknowable and thus permanently terrifying, but far more likely Mm -hmm. is that of all the wild things I have asked you to believe on this journey, the only truly ludicrous one is that humans could ever do away with their fear. Fear, I think, is as basic as blood. You can't take it out of the human. If my girls are gone for five minutes, I start to, you know, think, okay, somebody could be turning around at the end of the road. When I go out running, I make sure that there's no one following me over long distances. I just, like, I hope my children get to school fine. I'm scared for them every day. I'm very afraid of small places. Traffic accidents. I have to just stand there telling myself that there is enough oxygen for everyone. If somebody passes me, I have this, this is going to sound bizarre, I look over my shoulder to make sure they aren't turning around, coming, coming at me to hit me over my head. I'm afraid of my so kids getting hurt. I'm afraid of I'm afraid of Cowardice, I think, is our genetic destiny. Lulu Miller? Yes. You're a bummer. Also, in addition to being a bummer, you're wrong. And to prove it, I need to introduce you to our second test subject, Jason Comley. Hi, Jason. Yes. I'm here with Lulu Miller. 
Hi. Hi, Lulu. Jason's a freelance IT guy from Cambridge, Ontario, whose story starts one sad night several years ago. That Friday evening that I was in front of the computer in my, you know, one-bedroom apartment trying to be busy. Jason was pretending to work. He fed his four cats. But really, I knew that I was avoiding things. See, nine months earlier, Jason's wife had left him. She found someone that was uh, taller than I was, had more money than I had, uh, and was better looking than I was. So, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. And since that time, Jason had found himself struggling, really struggling, to be around people, particularly women. Yeah, I was extremely self-conscious, you know, just completely weird around people and like almost out of body experience, just trying to talk to somebody. For instance, Jason told me and Lulu about this time at church when he saw this very attractive woman looking at him in an interested way. She was at the other end of the hallway. The traffic is, I'm moving towards her and she's moving towards me kind of thing. And and I was just going to shake her hand to say hi or something. But then it happened. This icy cold feeling. And and it's kind of like gripping me as I'm, start walking towards her. And this was not your normal buzz-in-the-stomach type fear. This was a whole different animal of fear. All I can think is, I have to get air. (laughs) I have to get air. So Jason, you know, sticks out his hand for a handshake. Well, my hand felt like completely numb and cold, and I couldn't feel it. But on he goes. And I'm walking toward her. My hand extended to shake her hand, and I walk right past her and right toward the door to get out. (laughs) Sadly, this was not an isolated experience. I have hundreds of those kinds of stories. Which is why, to go back, Jason was at home alone that Friday night with no one but his four cats for company. Realizing that I had nowhere to go and no one to hang out with. And so I I just broke down and started crying. I just, it was just something that made me realize that I'm afraid. And then I just I asked myself, afraid of what? And yeah, I remember it now. I just uh, remember. Sorry, just a No, 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 it's okay. He says that sitting there, it just suddenly hit him why he was so afraid. It was rejection. I thought, I'm, I'm afraid of rejection. This realization was actually news to Jason. He had never thought of himself as a fearful person. And the thing was, I didn't know how to get out. I didn't know how to get out of this fear. And so... This is going to sound a little bit weird, but when I realized that it was rejection, I thought, I was kind of um, thinking about the Spetsnaz. The who? Do you know about the... No. The Spetsnaz? No. The Spetsnaz, apparently, are this elite 
Russian military unit. They're sort of like Navy SEALs, uh-huh. but Russian. So And I've like Navy SEALs, they have this really, really intense training regime. You know, I heard of one situation where they were uh, locked in a room, a windowless room, with a very angry dog, and they'd only be armed with a spade. And uh, only one one person's going to get out, either the dog or the Spetsna. So there's Jason thinking about the Spetsnas, and he's thinking about his own situation. I don't know. Maybe it was like, oh, Spetsnas wouldn't be scared of rejection. Like, <laughs> And then it hits him. Yeah. He should use their approach to fight his own fear. Apply their training methodology to this, this situation. So if you're a freelance IT guy living in a one-bedroom apartment in Cambridge, Ontario, what is the modern equivalent of being trapped in a windowless room with a rabid dog and nothing to protect you but a single handheld spade? I had to get rejected at least once every single day by someone. And so begins Jason's experiment with what he comes to call rejection therapy. It starts small, in the parking lot of his local grocery store. And I asked someone who was cleaning their windshield if I could uh, get a ride with them uh, to Preston. Preston's a town about 20 minutes away. And he looked at me like, and just said, I'm not going that way, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, just like, and I was like, thank you. And in that moment. It was like, got it. I got my rejection. It felt Great. There was something incredibly liberating about it, and just, I felt like anything was possible now. Because in that moment, Jason totally inverts the rules of life. He takes rejection, and he makes it something that he wants, something he actively seeks, so that he feels good when he gets it. And it was sort of like walking on my hands or living underwater or something. It was just like a a different reality. So off he sets, goes to the local Walmart with a stack of pass-along cards from his church, walks up to this very, very nice-looking woman, and offers her one. And she looked me squarely in the eye and sort of spoke uh, very slowly and articulately so that I would completely understand. (laughs) And and she just went, no. Over the next couple of months, Jason does this game he's invented, this rejection therapy, pretty much every day. So every morning, he comes up with a plan, a plan for how he will get rejected that day. Ask a friend to drive you out of town and back. And when they said, No. He just said, Thank you. He asked all kinds of people, all kinds of things that he had never asked before. Request lunch with a Facebook friend you've never met in person before. And they'd say... No. But he'd still say... Thank you. No. Thank you. No. Thank you. No. Thank you. No. And slowly, Jason began to feel more at ease around people. So he starts, you know, telling them about this little game that he's invented. And every time he does that... He gets a really positive response. The response is really great. Like, this is brilliant. It was just like, whoa. And then one day it occurred to him. He should turn rejection therapy into something more official. 
Okay, can you just read through your cards? Uh, okay, so... Uh, <clears throat> oh, uh, ask for a ride from a stranger, even if you don't need one. So he took his real-life rejection attempts... Ask a friend to do your laundry. Had them printed up. Ask to cut in front of a queue. On a deck of cards. Offer a stranger your food. Ask for a stranger's email address. Knock on a neighbor's door. Request something. And he began to sell these cards online... And slowly, rejection therapy, it became a kind of small cult phenomenon. Hi, sir. Do you have any chewing gum by any chance? No? All right. Today, all kinds of people play Jason's rejection therapy. Like this guy, a student in California named Matt Ramos. Excuse me. Do you guys have chewing gum by any chance? No? All right. It's all right. Or this guy, Joey Chandler from San Francisco. Um... You want to come play golf with us? When? Tomorrow night. It's a fundraiser for the Sun Valley School. I would love to. I don't know if I can. Jason knows a teacher in Colorado, a massage therapist in Budapest, a computer programmer in Japan, all of them using rejection therapy to overcome their everyday fears. He even has a letter from a widowed Russian grandmother. She was using rejection therapy to meet men. That's really cool. So, so there's a, a 80-year-old babushka playing rejection therapy. So this is Lulu again. I've, I've been sitting here wondering, okay, so what's the ending to our story here? Like, did you play, hmm. invent the game and play it and you landed a sweetie? No, 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 nothing like that. I Jason doesn't really have a Hollywood ending to his story. It didn't lead him to the girl of his dreams. In fact, he now has six cats instead of four. But what he has gotten is less fear, a life with less fear, in part because rejection therapy taught him that even for a socially awkward IT guy from Cambridge, Ontario, there just aren't as many no's out there as you might think. It was harder to get rejected than I thought. And that was that was really amazing for me, that people were actually saying yes. You know, I'd ask for a discount at a store, and, and they'd go, well, yeah, okay, I'll sell it to you for this. And I'm just like, what, really? Yeah. Fear, he's concluded, comes mostly from the stories that we tell ourselves. We, we're all always always, always telling stories to ourselves about the situation we're in and about other people. And and that story becomes a reality for us. And that's the problem. And we don't need these stories, he believes. Not half as much as we think we do. Don't even bother trying to be cool. Just get out there and get rejected. And sometimes it's going to get dirty, but that's okay because you're going to feel great after. You're going to feel like, wow, I, I disobeyed my fear. You know, I disobeyed fear. Offer to pay for someone's order. Before purchasing something, ask for a discount. Make yourself look radically different today. Say hello to three people at the grocery store. Request an in-person visit with a local personality. Ask a stranger for a breath and get someone's opinion on a recent news event. Smile at every person you walk past today. 
Invisibilia is me, Lulu Miller. And me, Elise Spiegel. Our senior editor is Ann Gudenkoff. With help from Eric Newsom, Portia Robertson Migas, Brendan Baker, Brent Bachman, Hannah Rosen, Matt Martinez, and Madalika Seca. Special thanks to Paul Drew Smith for his help with the music in this episode. And now, to reveal the secret formula to overcome all fear, I give you Lulu Miller. Jason Conley's foolproof formula is fear equals thinking plus time. Take either one of those things away, thinking or time, you cannot get fear. You're welcome. And now for our moment of nonsense. Do you know what was on my to-do list today? Get Hala, get Python. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Join us next week for more Invisibilia.